Okay. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here. My name is Levi. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Redeemer Church. Um, For those of you who don't know, I'm usually playing a guitar and singing, uh, so this is not a a real common spot to find me on Sunday morning right behind the pulpit, but occasionally I'm here, and um, this is one of those Sundays. So I'm glad to be able to to bring the word this morning um, from Haggai, actually, is where we're going to be. So... Um, yeah, with that, you can go ahead and grab your Bible, uh, if you have a Bible with you, and um, turn to the book of Haggai. A little Bible trivia for you. Uh, shortest book in the Old Testament right here. We're going to Haggai chapter 1. If uh, you're not sure where that is, you can do the whole list thing and hear it in your head, or you can go to Malachi and go back two books if you want. So it's just right near the end of the Old Testament, Haggai chapter 1. He's one of the minor prophets. He has the least to say. So uh, that means a short sermon this morning for, for everybody. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll take a look at this together. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm just uh, so thankful to get to be with your people this morning. We're thankful together to get to be with your people, Jesus, and to fix our eyes on you and to worship you and to, just to behold you, Lord. Um, don't take this for granted, God. Just the fact that we can come in and, and, uh, and hear your word, Jesus, and, and just take time to fix our thoughts on you, Lord. And um, so thankful for that this morning, God. And I'm just aware that, I, that it's uh, um, kind of almost overwhelming to stand here and to just preach your word. So, Lord, and it is. It's, I got no ability to do this this morning, God, in and of myself. So please um, empower your word this morning to go out and to land on us in ways that you want it to land on us and that your spirit would um, just just have its way with us this morning, Jesus, wherever we might be, whether we're not even believing in you at all or, or maybe we're in a very good and, and strong spot this morning, whatever it might be, Jesus, may your spirit um, speak to us, change us, work in us, encourage us, do whatever it is that we need done in us today. And uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Gonna ask a question this morning. It's forcing you to be vulnerable, at least in your heart. Do we have any procrastinators here today? Pro- like chronic procrastinators, the, the, you know, you just always have something, a long list of things you need to do, and you just don't want to do them. You can be honest, at least in your own heart this morning. You can be one of those people. It's something I think we actually all can relate to in some way, right? We all probably have something, even the most disciplined of us know what procrastination is and know exactly what that feeling is and maybe are currently right now thinking of four or five different things that you are not doing because you just don't want to get around to them. It's part of the fall. It's part of the fall that we don't talk about as much. We talk about death and disease and all that stuff. What about procrastination? I think it's probably falling in there somewhere. It's common to everybody. Lots of people have written little lines about it after reflecting on it. Robert Benchley, uh, early 1900s kind of comedian guy here in America, said this about procrastination after considering it. He said, anyone can do any amount of work, provided it isn't the work he's supposed to be doing at that moment. (laughs) And I know that feeling really well, especially in college. 
when I have to write a paper and I'm not interested in writing that paper, my socks have to get organized like right now. And uh, my laundry has to get done right now. We've all been there. Here's an optimistic spin. The sooner I fall behind, the more time I have to catch up. So that's, that's nice. Uh, for those of you who have embraced procrastination as a lifestyle, you'll like this. Folks who tell you that putting it off won't make it any easier, presume that there's a point where you actually plan to stop putting it off. You're like, that ah, doesn't matter to me. I'm going to put it off. Here's an artsy one. Procrastination is the art of keeping up with yesterday. It's fantastic. I bring my library books back today because they were due yesterday. It's an art. Here's a true one. This is good. What may be done at any time will be done at no time. And related to that, famously, if it wasn't for the last minute, things would never get done, right? Lastly, if you think, uh, to think too long about doing a thing often becomes its undoing. And you can just watch a kid in the candy aisle when you say, you can actually have a piece of candy, pick something out, and they'll sit there for 30 minutes looking at all these different options, thinking about what can I do, what can I do? And finally, what happens? Mom or dad just says, you're having the sucker and we're good. And uh, the kid's up in arms because that's not what he wanted at all. Think too long about doing something, it often becomes its undoing. And the text that we're encountering today with Haggai, uh, Israel is in a bit of a procrastination problem. They've, they're, they're really waiting on something to the point of disobedience. Um, Haggai chapter 1, I think we've had sufficient time to find it by now. Haggai chapter 1. Situating us in the, uh, just kind of the historical context here, uh, in, Haggai, in Haggai 1, you have Israel, uh, well, first of all, Haggai 1, you could kind of take, if you're reading through the, through the Bible, Genesis to Nehemiah, say, that's pretty much the story of Israel, Genesis to Nehemiah. If you read all that, you've read pretty much Israel's history in the Old Testament. The rest of it is prophets that get kind of slotted into that time, timeline somewhere. And Haggai gets slotted into um, Ezra, chapter, between chapter 5 and 6. You could take Haggai and you could just say, you just kind of squeeze it into Ezra 5 and 6, and that's where Haggai is, is taking place. You could even make note of it in your Bible. That's where it's happening. And Israel has just been in exile for about 70 years. Uh, they've been in Babylonian captivity. God had prophesied for many, many, many years that if Israel did not turn and repent, um, that they would, be, uh, they would be punished for their sins. They would go into exile. These, all these things would happen. And Israel had these little spurts where they would, a little revival would break out, and they'd have a good leader, and they would, they would turn back to God. But then they just kept on just becoming a faithless bunch. And finally God says, fulfills his word through his prophets, and, and, uh, and Israel is taken captive. Jerusalem is left in shambles. The temple, their beautiful temple, is, is just destroyed. And for 70 years, they've been in exile in a foreign land. And now, God has stirred up Cyrus, the king, to say, I'm going to set these Israels not only free, I'm going to commission them to go back to their land and to go rebuild that temple. God, God just stirs up Cyrus. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 1 to want to see the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's amazing. It's an amazing story that God would do something like that. And so he, uh, 
he, he, he sends the Israelites out, the exiles, back to the land and actually loads them up with gifts and all these different um, just beautiful, expensive artifacts for their temple and says, go rebuild the temple. Go get it done. We want to see that built again. Uh, and, they, and so they do. They start heading back. Um, and again, this is all just in Ezra. You could read through it real fast if you wanted to at a different time. But uh, they get back and they start rebuilding their, you know, their homes and they're back into the city that's in shambles for the most part and um, start putting things together and they, and they start sacrificing to God. They hadn't done this in years to actually come back to the land and start sacrificing again. And basically they're saying, we are committed to the covenant. We are committed to God. We've learned our lesson. We're going to do it right this time. They start building the temple, just the foundation of it, just the initial foundation. But they get going right away. And then a little bit of opposition comes when they start building the foundation of the temple. And for about 38, 37 years, they don't touch the temple anymore. This is their procrastination problem. It's just like, there it sits. 38 years. Nothing done. Still in shambles. And that's where we are in Haggai chapter 1 when we start reading it. Um, which is right now. Let's turn there. Or let's, uh, let's read the first couple verses. Haggai 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came. And let's just pause there for a second. The word of the Lord hasn't come to Israel since the exile. This is massively significant. The word of the Lord came. They've been in captivity wondering, when are we going to hear from God again? Here it is. The word of the Lord has come. God has once again raised up a prophet to speak truth to them. What does God have to say? What is the tone of his message? Keep reading. Came by, uh, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, Jehozadak, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, uh-oh, that's not a good way to start. That's, that's bad tone right there, coming, coming, coming out of uh, Haggai's mouth right off the bat. It reminds them of Isaiah when he would say, these people uh, say that they serve me, say that they love me, but their hearts are far from me. They say they worship me, but their hearts are far from me. These people, same kind of line, um, say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Okay. The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So picture, if you, if you can, with me. You're in, a, you're in a city. You've been there about 40 years. You've built your house. It's starting to look a little better around there. But there in the middle of your great city lies this big, just this, this temple that was grand at one time. Just a big pile of rocks and mess and danger and all this stuff. And kids run around it and you're worried and all the, yeah. It's just a mess. And it's right in the middle of the city. And you have neighbors, perhaps, just kind of having neighborly conversation over the fence. And you got on the one side Jim and you got you know, Harry over here, and they, and they connect after the workday quite often, and then Jim turns to Harry, and he says, man, I was thinking about that temple again today. Right there, the big ugly rock pile heap. Um, man, it's embarrassing. Isn't it embarrassing? I heard the other day, I saw some people come into town, and they, 
weren't from around here and they looked at him, I swear they were laughing. They're laughing. They're laughing at our God. They're laughing at us because that's what, that's, that's what our God looks like. You know, he's just a rock heap. And you got Harry over here and he's like, man, yeah, that's so true. I think about it all the time. And you know, I'm so on board with rebuilding that thing. I'm so, yeah. but I mean, you also know, like, my crop is horrible this year. My honey-do list got longer yesterday. We're having a baby. I got I to gotta get, uh, get another room built on my house. There's just, I got a long list of things to do. But you know, man, I got your back. When it's time to build that temple, let's do that. Let's do it. And let's do it right. I mean, we're going to do it. Let's get some guys together. Let's get some guys together. And we're going to talk about the plans for this thing. We'll get a plan together. Let's keep this conversation going. But now, now, now is not the right time. Like, it's just not the right time. And then they agree on this. And this is sort of a common expression for 40 years. Now is not the right time to build the temple. And these kinds of conversations would happen, I think, pretty regularly. Now is not the time. Maybe another time. Well, why is it not the right time? Keep reading. Um, Pick it up in verse 3. So the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet... Is it time, playing off that word time above, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Ah, new, new evidence is submitted here. Is it time for you to dwell in paneled houses? If you know anything about house, building a house or anything about a house, you know that paneling, for the most part, is an aesthetic thing. I mean... For us, there's wiring, and there is some safety involved in paneling. But for the, for, for the most part, paneling your house, putting nice paneling on your house is, is you're beautifying it. You're making it, you're making it pretty. It's extra. It's a luxury. It's, it's beautiful. We might add to that kind of list in our day, painting your accent wall, hanging your, you know, hanging your, uh, your flowers around, and building your patio and wiring your sound system. It's this kind of stuff. Paneling your house is, it's not safety anymore. It's not structural. It's, let's make our house pretty. God's saying, it sounds to me, or it looks to me, like with your paneled houses, that what you really mean, it's not a convenient time to start building the temple again. It's not a convenient time to start building the temple. It's not that you don't have time. It's just you have too many other things that you want to get to. And I know I cannot relate to this at all. I never say this to God. I never bring up the convenience thing in my life to say I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z, whatever it is you're calling me to God, because it's not convenient. Not a chance. But, they are, but they're doing it, so we'll try to understand their world here a little bit. Um, but to their credit, it's not the only reason that now is not the right time to build the temple. Keep on moving through it here. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You could even jump down a little bit. I don't want to read all this, but right in this minute. But um, you could jump down to verse 10. Therefore, the heavens have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. It's a picture. God is painting a picture here, and it's filling it out a little bit better for us. 
that this is an economically depressing time for Israel. There's a drought in the land. The crops really aren't producing very good um, produce. Uh, they're, they're eating, but they're still hungry. They're drinking, but they're still thirsty. They're working hard, but they're not seeing the fruit of their labor really. They're not being satisfied by the fruit of their labor. Uh, this idea of you, you, make, you earn money, but then there's holes in the bags that you put them in. In other words, your bills are so high. Inflation is up. You get the money, and then it's out the door. You don't even get a chance to hardly think about where you want to spend it because you have bills to pay. It's an economically depressing time. And I think at that point, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, they got good reason to not get to that temple. I mean, who, who has time to work on the temple when you barely have time to put the work in the, to get food on the table? So it seems, at least at first hand— Oh, and I'll just add this. If you read Ezra and Zechariah, you also—they um, fill out the picture even more. It's actually kind of dangerous to work on the temple. People don't want anyone working on that temple right now that God says that they should go build. Um, people that are powerful, that can show up at your door and do things. They can knock on your door and, and make trouble for you. So why would you, why would you do it? Why, of course you would just say, now is not the right time to do it. Clearly it's not the right time to do it. And they've heard Isaiah. Maybe they're thinking the Messiah is going to come and build the temple. And I'm not the Messiah, so we'll just have to wait for him for 40 years. They're still waiting. Meanwhile, the temple's a mess. It's a big pile of rocks. It's right in the middle of the city. It's an embarrassment for them. It makes God, it makes God look bad, look weak. It looks like maybe he's not even with his people. It's kind of a disgraceful thing. It actually reminds me of my family room at times. Uh, we have two little boys. <laughs> and occasionally they decide every toy in the closet needs to come out. And, our, and for a few days, our, our family room looks like a really poorly run like toy store, secondhand toy store or something like that. Just Legos everywhere. Uh, every color crayon has to come out and get broken and smashed into the carpet and papers are all over and it just like a, like a bomb blows up. And, uh, and we tell our boys, you got to clean that up. And they say, yeah, we know, we know, we know. And then when it comes to cleaning it up, it's like they look at it, right? And, and they just don't think it's, it's possible. It's, it's impossible. We can't clean this up. And when we, we whine and we complain and we say, well, you have to clean it up. And it can take a day or two or three or four. It, it can take a long time. When the family room becomes a mess, it can take a long time for that family room to get cleaned up. And I know what the issue is. The issue is they're distracted. They start cleaning up Legos. And then they start building Legos, you know. And then it's like, well, I got to do this. And they're, they're just playing for three hours and nothing gets done. And I think they just don't believe it. They don't believe they can actually get the job done. And me and Ashley, my wife, we kind of stand as prophets over them proclaiming truth. <laughs> you can do this, you know. You can clean up this, uh, this mess. You will clean up this mess. We might have to threaten them like a prophet. Or else, you know, uh, you will clean it up. And eventually they do, they do usually get it done. But their, their issue is they're distracted and they're disbelieving. And this is, this is the same with Israel. They're, they're really, essentially, they're distracted with building their homes, getting their little spot, you know, having their little garden, getting everything the way they like it. And I think they, they look at that big pile called the temple, the old temple, and they think, there's no way we can do this. There's just no way. This, is, this cannot be the time to do it. So, we'll read on. Is God impressed with their excuses? Does he say, oh yeah, good point? 
or does he have something else to say? He says twice. Actually, I'm just going to highlight a couple things that he says. Once in verse 5 and once in verse 7. He says, consider your ways. Again, he says it in verse 7. Consider your ways. Think about your life for a minute. Think about, he's saying, think about what, what your situation is in life. You work so hard and you get so little. You have no time to do what you want, what, you, what, what I've called you to do. So stop and think about this theologically for a minute. Think about your situation through the lens of, 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 of Bible, of their Bible. Think about it through the perspective of God. Because if the issue, if the reason you can't obey me and build my temple is that I've made your life too difficult for you to do it, then, I'm, then God is to blame. Their, their disobedience, they can trace it back and say, well, God, you, you don't help us enough so that we can obey you. Or something's wrong with them. And we know, obviously, God's never wrong. So something must be wrong with them. He says, and he reiterates their issues. Or he t- he, he, he's the one who explains their issues, but basically saying, you harvest little. You know, you work hard, but you harvest little. You eat, but never have enough. He goes through all that stuff where you work, you do all this stuff, and you don't seem to get anywhere in life why is that? Verse 9. Verse 9. Kind of near the end of it. Why declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Essentially God's saying, you say, we can't work to rebuild the house of God. We can't work to rebuild the temple. Because... Uh, because our lives, because we have too much to worry about. And God's saying, you have too much to worry about because you won't build my temple. It's, it's reversed. You've got to reverse this. So what does it remind you of, Israel? What should this call to mind? Consider your ways. What am I, what's God saying? He's saying, think of your life in light of Scripture. Think of the covenant I made. What have I said about this? It's covenant language. And it goes back to Deuteronomy. It goes back to Leviticus. And let's just flip over there real quick. We're not going to read a lot of it, but just grab, grab Deuteronomy. This is what God is trying to get them to recall. Re- remember my words. Remember my covenant. This shouldn't surprise you. You obey me, you get blessed. You disobey me. Go to Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. And you disobey me, and you fall under covenant curses. And here you see. This is stuff that they should know and be remembering and reflecting on. Deuteronomy 28, verse 38 says, in light of their disobedience, it says, you shall carry much seed into the field and you shall gather little. Oh, that sounds like Haggai. For the locust shall consume it. You'll plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. Oh, sounds like Haggai. Sounds like what's going on. You'll, uh, for the worms shall eat them. And this whole section, honestly, has just a ton of, like, the covenant curses. just want to grab those two things and say, God is calling them back to his word to reflect on their lives in light of his word. He says in Leviticus 26, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it, 26, 20. Your strength shall be spent in vain if you disobey me, for the land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. 
we got to be careful when we read sections of like the Old Testament because we can immediately think, oh, that's just, that's me. It's not raining because I'm disobeying God or something like that. And we just got to pause here for a minute and just remember, we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus who accomplished the law perfectly. He, 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 he it's, it's not that it's abolished, it has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so when we read the Old Testament and read about covenant curses and that kind of stuff, that just turned, we just turn to Jesus and say, thank you for taking all that curse. I mean, thank you for taking all of that stuff upon yourself. And so we approach it very differently. We approach it with a different set of lenses. Just want to throw that in there because we can, you get some wacky theology coming out of the Old Testament if you don't bring Jesus into it constantly. So, um, but in their context, Jesus hasn't shown up yet, and they are under the curses, just as uh, the covenant has, has uh, stipulated. So, I think we can pause for a second here and just say, what has God done? What's he doing? He's saying, there's just two points of, really, of two major points that I, that I came up with in this text that I could see. And that is that God uses his word— in the community of his people to reveal sin that we can't see all the time. He uses his word in the community of his people to reveal sin that we don't even necessarily always see in our own lives. Do his people know they're sinning? Maybe some do, maybe some don't. They're probably kind of foggy on it. And he's just calling them back to the word in the context of their whole community. He's not saying go off by yourself and have a quiet time. He's saying all of you come together and consider together the covenant that we made. Are you really living up to it? Are you really following it? Are you obeying my words? And if they look at his word and they read it, they'll say, well, no, we're sinning. And we can just pause right there. That carries over into the New Testament. That's something we can look back at and we can say, man, sin can lie under the surface in ways that we don't see if we're not in his word and if we're not in community. And that's essentially what, G- what God is calling them back to. So, do you find yourself constantly, like, do you find yourself in a mess after mess after mess in life? I mean, you can just stop and say, am I constantly embroiled in some kind of relational conflict? Or is my finances just, I'm always making bad decision after bad decision, and we never can seem to get out of things, or, or whatever. We can, we can, we can look at all that, and, and God would say to us, well, well, think about it in light of my, my revealed word. Think about it with the people. Think about it with the church that you're a part of. Don't, don't just be isolated and think about it all by yourself. Bring it out into the light. Talk about what you're struggling with. Talk about what life looks like, and, and bring God's word into that conversation. And this is, this is simply what happens. I mean— it can happen in different churches in different ways. This is, this is what life groups is. This is kind of what we're trying to do. A big part of life groups is bringing God's word and God's people together in open transparency to do life together on mission. It's, it's just this. But all that stuff has to happen. And in every church, it has to happen in some way. With all of God's people, that has to happen in some way. That is how we grow. That is how we see sin in our lives. You live by yourself and in isolation and, and you know, we— and comparison, and, and whatever, but stick to yourself, and you, will not, you just won't see the kind of sin that you actually have. You'll see some things, but you'll miss a lot of things, too. You come to the community, you come to your life group, you come to your DNA group, which if you're not in a life—I don't mean to throw code words around. It's just a—you got your life groups, and then you have um, smaller groups of men and women that will meet together regularly to go into the Word together— 
to confess sin to each other, to talk about real life issues that you're struggling with so that other people can, 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 uh, can bring godly counsel to you, can help maybe even identify why you're in this mess again. And it could be that you're actually sinning in ways you don't realize that you're sinning, and you just need God's people to bring that to light. So that's what DNA is. That's what Life Group is about. That's one of the, not the only thing, but it's definitely a big thing that it's all about. The fog can be lifted. I've experienced this in my own life. The fog in confession and in community of your life, the fog of your life can be lifted very much, and you can start to see things more clearly, whereas before it was quite foggy, and you're frustrated, and you're angry, and you're not happy, (laughs) or anything like that. And it's amazing what happens in confession, in the Word, in community. It's amazing how your life can just turn around in a lot of ways and be clarified, and, and your issues can be clarified. So that's what's going on here. God is clarifying the issue. You're sinning, Israel. You're disobeying me. I've already explained all this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the law. And, and uh, this is a grace to them that God would, uh, would, would do that for them. So, we'll keep on moving here. <clears throat> their unwillingness to build the temple was, was their sin, right? So we've covered that. Um, but we come to this issue of the temple eventually. What is the big deal about the temple? Why does God care so much to have a temple? And it could, because it all, everything in this passage seems to hinge on it, and it's like, okay, then what's he after? What's he after? Well, think of it this way. The temple, we live in such a culture and a context that's removed from temples for the most part. I mean, look where we meet, you know? We're in a gym. So, obviously, we have disconnect here, culturally. Um, but, but think of a temple, think of, think of the temple as like a facet of a diamond, Okay, so you have, you have a diamond, and maybe some of you have diamonds on your, on your, on your uh, a ring um, on your finger, and, you know, you catch, you catch the light a certain way, and the facet will, will shine and glitter, and you can, you know, you can mess with the speaker, the preacher, when, it, when he's going too long, and, and shine the light. You got all these different facets, and you cannot separate those facets off of each other. They all, they're all stuck together. And with temple, temple's one facet, Mission is, is on this, is part of the diamond too. Temple, mission, the glory of God being, being displayed, God's presence. All these things are like a diamond with different facets on them. So when God's talking about temple, he's not just, he's not just talking about a structure. I want a structure and I want it to be beautiful. He's talking about mission. He's talking about his glory. Uh, he's talking about his presence being advanced through the world. Temple was a huge theology for them. And they would have caught it. They know because they're, they're, they're in that context more so than we are. Um, so, so the temple has to do with mission, has to do with his presence, advancing in the world. And I don't know if you, if you know this or not, the, the first temple. Do you know where the first temple shows up in the Old Testament? The, fir- the very first temple? It's actually in Genesis 1. It's the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God gets to work, and he starts um, by, just by the power of his voice, creating the world, right? He creates the world, and eventually he creates, he creates this garden, or it kind of zeroes in on this garden. 
and he creates Adam. In the garden is where he, his presence was. So that's what a temple is. It's where God is. And so God is in the garden. He's in his temple. In that, old, in that ancient context, gardens and deity, they, they did go together. There was just a common connection in their mindset of gardens, temples, gods live in gardens. You know, this is all together. It wasn't a big jump for them to, to see that. Um, so you have God creating a garden. He lives in his garden, and he creates Adam. Adam, among other things, is God's first priest, working in the garden, living in fellowship with, with God. They walk together in the garden. It's, pretty, it's, it's amazing to think about and to read the, that part of the story. They walk together. Their fellowship is beautiful and perfect. There's no shame. Uh, there's no sin. He works. He's satisfied by the food that's in the garden and the water that's in the garden. It is a temple. It's a pure and perfect temple. And then God brings him Eve— And what does he say to them? He says, he blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, take this experience, this garden, this fellowship that we have, and just push the the boundaries of this garden. Keep going out with it. Have babies. And then those babies will have babies. And we'll just keep on, we'll take this, this beautiful experience that we're having here in the garden, and we'll just keep advancing. We'll keep expanding it all over the world. It's mission. It's not a fallen world, but in a sense, it's mission. It's this idea of extending the glory of God throughout the whole earth, throughout the whole world. That was what God set up right in the beginning. We don't have time to go to Revelation, but you'll see Garden show up again. You'll see some of that same kind of stuff show up in uh, the last bit of Revelation 21, 22, in that area. It's, It's just beautiful. And then you have, of course, they fell. They fell into sin. And they're what? They're cast out of the garden. They're cast out of God's temple. They're cast away from God's presence. But he doesn't just like then leave them. He immediately starts putting a plan in place um, through his promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through Abraham. Um, he starts putting that plan in place. And you see little, little, little temples show up in Shiloh and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and Mount Sinai. And you see all these little things where God's people— have God's presence with him in, a, in some form of a temple, and they're out in the world moving, and, and God is growing them into a great nation. So you have a temple happening, just not a perfect Garden of Eden kind of temple anymore. And so it's just an amazing story, and the temple theology continues on through the Old Testament. It kind of peaks with Solomon's temple. If you read through that, just this, the description's unbelievable. If you just take your time and read through Solomon's temple and the gold and all that stuff and the silver, it's this magnificent temple, and it kind of stands as the climax of, of Israel as a nation. Finally, this old ragtag bunch of slaves that were set free and have taken a long time to get there have built a proper temple in a proper city for the, for the great God that they serve. And, and Solomon builds this temple— and what happens? People from all over come to see it. That's what the Queen of Sheba, if you remember that story where the Queen of Sheba comes from a long way, it's a short little part of the story. And she's there representing what? The nations coming to Israel to worship. They've heard of your temple. We've heard of your king. We've heard of your laws. How can any of this be true? And, and where you came from, how can you possibly, Israel, be a nation like this? And so she comes and she has to see for herself, for Uh, with her own eyes, could it really be true, all the stuff I've heard? And she leaves, and she's overwhelmed with the glory of God, essentially. It's just this fantastic, climactic point of Israel's history. 
And uh, again, kind of like the garden, they uh, make an idol out of the temple and many other things, and it's destroyed, and, and, uh, and it seems like all is lost. But it's not all lost. God does continue. He says in Micah 4, through, you could pick a lot of t- passages from the prophets, but many nations will come and say, let us go to the temple that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. The temple always had nations. It always had expansion in mind. It always had mission. God's presence will go out into the world through my people, and they will, they will know me. They will behold God, and, and they will worship. They'll want to be a part of this. So in our text, when God is saying, build my temple, he's saying, Israel, I'm still on mission, and you're still my people to accomplish my mission. I haven't I haven't forgotten it. I haven't forgotten you. You went into exile for a while, but, but the mission is still active. It's still going on. But you're, you're sitting around, and you're not building my temple. Habakkuk 2.4, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. It will. As the waters cover the seas, it's going to happen. God is going to do it. He's, ra- he's raised up the prophet Haggai to get him to do it. And we can ask now, how did they respond to this word, this temple? Because this stuff is what is in their minds. They know what God is getting at. Haggai 1, go down to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed. (laughs) What a relief. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. This fear, by the way, is not a, like a, a quiet, reverent fear. This is more like a panicked fear. <laughs> this is more like, oh my goodness, we're seriously messing everything up right now. It's like when you get pulled over, perhaps, by a, by a police officer and you're speeding, that's sort of like, oh, the dread. How hard is he going to be on me? <laughs> is he going to let me off on a warning? This is the fear that they're, fearing, that they're feeling is, oh my goodness, we're breaking the covenant. We just went into exile. Is he going to send us into exile again? Like, is this all going to happen again? So they fear God. It's the proper response. They're awestruck. And even though the word repent is not used, it's, I think it's very much happening here. They obey. They obey God. They fear God. And um, that's the right response. Just thinking about mission and thinking about repentance and all that stuff as a Christian, I, I, I remember my um, the first six years of, of my marriage. Me and Ashley have been married um, coming up into close to 10 years now. But the first six years we lived in Chicago and um, we're part of a church out there in Chicago. And I, as, a, as a married couple, we did some things right did a lot of things wrong as a leader. I feel like I, I did a lot of things wrong. I was very immature and had to grow in a lot of ways. But one of the ways that we just did, we, mission was never on our radar. It was on our radar in a guilty sense, like we should do something about our neighbors and we should get to know people. But mission as a married couple was always like, it just never happened. Six years, I can't tell you the name of my neighbor, not a single neighbor. Nobody ever came into our apartment that was not from our church. Um, we just kind of got into early married life together that a lot of, you know, it seems like you get the excuse when you get married too, right? It's like, okay, just figure out life together. 
And for six years, we just kind of figured out life together and never took seriously any kind of advantages we have now as a married couple to do mission, like to, to proclaim Jesus in my little neighborhood that we live in. And I think we felt guilty at times, and we would, I think we did talk about it every once in a while. But I was a, I was a part-time pastor at the church, and basically we compartmentalized. We did the whole, the whole thing where it's like, well, I do, I do mission when I'm wearing my youth pastor hat or my worship pastor hat. And then when I go home, I lock the door. <laughs> and our door literally did lock, actually. Every, it's just automatic. And, uh, but it represented kind of how we did mission. It was very, very, uh, when it was convenient kind of thing, basically. And when we came here to CRC about three years ago, a little over three years ago, um, that's when Brett and Thomas were kind of preaching on, we need to repent for not doing mission kind of stuff, <laughs> like as a church, you know, just, just, just taking seriously your mission field where you live, you know, where you work. This is just the everyday mission that you have. And it was like water to our souls. It was just like, in a, and we're very repentant in good ways. I mean, and it took a while, but it was like, oh my goodness, I so need to repent here. I so need to recognize that that mission is, is just part of my identity. It's part of what we do as a married couple. It's part of how I lead my family, all this stuff. So it was really good for us. The timing um, was perfect for us. And, and, and so when I read Haggai, and I read sort of like they obeyed the voice of the Lord and I don't know that I felt a, a, a shaking in my boots kind of fear, but there was a fear of the Lord in that I wanted to obey God. I, I'm like, okay, I want to, we need to make some changes here. And by God's grace, that has happened. But all that to say, I can relate, and I think maybe some of you can relate very much to this idea of, yeah, I, I don't do, as a Christian, I, I pretty much just do mission when it's convenient, when it fits my schedule. And, and, and that, was, that was us for years. And thankfully, things have definitely turned around. Lord, the Lord has been faithful to, to grow our hearts and, and to change us. So, um, Anyway, so that's what you got going with Haggai. There's some, there's some obedience. There's some fear. There's some willingness to, to turn around and to, um, you know, to make the right kind of changes. <clears throat> so, looking here at the very end of the text... You know, when, when we do humble ourselves, I'll just say as well, when we do humble ourselves and just kind of recognize our sin for what it is and stop making excuses for it, God is so gracious. I mean, he's so gracious in those moments. There's never been a time when I've confessed sin and haven't been met with the grace of God in some way. Ever, ever, every time. God is gracious when we're humble and we confess sin. And, uh, and he is with, with his people here. We'll read it here at the very end of the, the chapter, Haggai 1. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came together, and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their gods, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the sixth year of Darius the king. The Haggai tracks the dates really closely because it's amazing how fast the temple gets built. It just, so it's all over, like this day, on this month, you know, it's very specific because he wants you to see it happened, and it happened fast. Why? Because God, God showed up and said, I am with you. 
They needed a word of grace. They needed a word of comfort in light of their sin. They needed to hear, okay, what can we do about this? What's God going to do? God says, oh, I'm with you. I am with you. And that phrase is a phrase they've heard for a long time. You maybe have heard that, that, that phrase many times. God is with you. God is with you. I am with you. Zerubbabel and Joshua here, they probably grew up hearing that phrase all the time. It is a promise that God has given his people. And real quick, I want to fire through a few texts where that happens, where God says, I am with you. And it's almost always in the context of some impossible task that God's given them to do. Just an impossible situation, and God comes alongside and says, but I'm with you. I am with you. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to put, put up the words on the screen. Genesis 28, 15. Jacob, whose name later becomes Israel, uh, He's on the run from his brother who's looking to kill him. He says, God says to him, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I am with you. Uh, Exodus 3.12, this, this is Moses, who is a, uh, a fugitive of the law, and he has a speech problem. He stammers or something like that. He's not a real powerful guy, it seems like, at least in this stage in his life. God says this in Exodus 3.12. He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall go, uh, you shall serve God on this mountain. I am with you. Even though you have no ability <laughs> at all to go lead this great people out of, uh, out of the hand of Pharaoh. Uh, Joshua 1.9. Before going to the promised land, a land of giants. Moses had just died. Joshua's wondering, okay, how am I going to do this? Joshua 1 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's a lot of prophetic books I could have quoted from, but I'm just going to just move along to Matthew 28, famously, what we call the Great Commission. Go therefore, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You're going to fail at all this, by the way, if, if this last line doesn't, doesn't show up. It's an impossible task. You cannot go into all the world and make disciples. You can't even go to your next-door neighbor and turn him into a disciple by yourself. It just won't happen. But behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And God's track record with all these promises is 100% successful. He's always successful in all of those situations because he's promised his presence to be with them. And our mission is, is still the same in many, many, many ways. It's not that we're going to go put our hands to, to brick and mortar and build a, a physical temple. But we've been called to spread the fragments of the knowledge of God everywhere. And in that way, temple building is happening. Temple building is happening because, because the temple has been decentralized now, right? I mean, so you got Jesus walking. The temple is Jesus uh, because we know when he's sitting there, or when the disciples and him are walking along and they're looking at the temple and they're like, wow, look at how amazing this temple is. What does Jesus say to his disciples? Tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. What's he saying? I'm the temple. I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. I, I, I am God, and, and you don't need—this temple is obsolete now. I'm here, and I'm on mission. I, I'm redeeming this world. I'm—new creation is coming through me. 
I'm the temple. And if you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, he fills you with his Holy Spirit. He fills you with who he is. And now where's the temple? It's in you. It's in us. You are the temple. Not you in that you've done anything, but Christ in you, the Spirit in you, is now the temple. It's been completely decentralized, but the call, the mission, it's all still there. It's nothing's changed. Nothing's changed at all. <clears throat> so it just basically means when you step into your neighbor's yard or <laughs> walk into the workplace or go to a family reunion or a party that your friend is throwing, you're bringing the temple with you. You're bringing God's presence with you in a unique and special way. And the call is still the same. Just advance, advance my presence. Advance my kingdom. Make disciples. Go, and, 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 and you can do this. Why? Because I am with you. Eden, we're getting back to Eden in some ways. The, the, the garden will expand. It's invisible in some ways. It's hard to see in some ways. But the, the garden is expanding. God's presence is expanding in his people. But there's still this call to be faithful to that. There's still this call to repent when we don't want to do it, and then to get on board and to receive grace and, you know, and to, and to move forward in, uh, in mission and to just take his instruction, take his word seriously. And I think we feel, at diff- I know we feel at different times like this is, uh, it is an impossible mission and, you know, that family member is never going to come to Jesus, or, or my neighbor, man, he shows like zero interest at all in ever having a conversation about Jesus. And we just feel, I think, at times, or you can feel like, man, I'm socially awkward. I just don't know what to say to people. Even when I know them really well, I don't know what to say all the time. And put me in front of someone I don't know very well, and what am I going to say? And how am I going to talk about Jesus? And we feel defeated sometimes before we even step out the door to, to represent Christ well. We just do. It's just common. We do feel it. And I think what we need is, is, a, is a fresh, um, just a, a, a refreshing, a belief, a, a strengthening belief that when God, said, God says he's with you, he is with you. He really is with you. It is not in your strength that we go out into this world and make disciples. It's just not, because you'll fail every time. But God is with you. And I want that truth to go deeper into my heart, just to become more of a reality, not something I just hear and think, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. But no, that's a promise. That's a promise. So that when you set out to to obey God, to build this temple, to, to make disciples, it's, I'm doing it in the Lord's strength here. He's with me. Think of a, just thinking about God's presence for a minute. You know, if, it, if a child is having a nightmare, if you're, whether you're a parent or not, you, know, you just know what a nightmare is. And the child is having a nightmare, and you hear the screaming and uh, the yelling and sort of that disoriented, sort of sweaty child in their blankets trying to make sense of what's real. Yeah, a mom or dad comes rushing into the room, grabs, that, grabs the child, holds him close, and says what? What do you say in that moment? What, what is it, what's the best thing? What's the best thing that child can hear right then? It's really, daddy's here. You know, mommy's right here. Mommy's right here. Daddy's right here. And you just hold him and you just say, daddy is right here. It's the most comforting thing in the world that that child can hear right now as they're trying to, like, make sense. What happened? Where am I? What's going on? 
Daddy's here. I'm right here. And that, that, is, that has a calming, I mean, that's just, that's, what else can you say? Don't try to explain anything. God's here. God is here with us. He's here with his people. Let that be a reality for us. In the same way, when I'm, when I'm afraid, God's here. When I'm, when I'm, when I'm uh, uncertain about what to do or whatever, God is here. He's here. He's comforting. He's leading. He's guiding you. He's, he's giving you grace for whatever he's called you to do. He's empowered you to do it. Um, pray that that becomes a greater reality. For, for you, for me. Zerubbabel, what happens? God stirs him up. God just comes, he just shows up and says, I know you've heard that a thousand times, Zerubbabel and Joshua, but I'm going to make you, I'm going to stir you up with this truth that I am with you. You are not out there on your own. You are not out there in your own flesh striving to do anything. I am with you. So, I'm praying that for myself. I'm praying it for CRC, that that would just God would stir us up in our mission, you know. And I know, I know mission's happening, and it's, it's, it's awesome. We've got some, some great stories to tell, even in our own life group this summer, uh, of things we've done. Um, but, but may God stir us up to do, do it more and do it, do it on a regular basis, uh, just continually interested in every opportunity that we get to speak of the glory and the power of God, the, the glory of the gospel, that Jesus who has come and and rescued a rebellious person like me. <laughs> and, 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 um, and he's doing that all over the place. Um, maybe we just take advantage of those opportunities as often as we get them and think strategically about how can we do it more? How can we be on mission? How can we be faithful, faithful to what God has called us to do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, Again, I just, I just thank you for the promise of your presence, Lord, with us. Thank you for the promise that you are, you don't leave us, you don't forsake us, you're with us always. Um, you don't call us to something like make disciples of all nations or in Old Testament language, advance or build your temple. <laughs> you don't call us to that, Jesus, and then, and then not empower us to do it. So, God, may we be people who um, are in your word, dealing with sin, not afraid to go there with people, not, not, ashamed, not so ashamed that we won't, won't, or so hardened in our hearts that we won't bring it to light. May we be people quick to repent of anything and everything that we need to. And, um, and, and then just get, get into the mission, get into what you've called us to do, Lord, making disciples wherever we might go, um, bringing you glory every opportunity we get, Jesus. We just need you for this. We can't do it on our own. We can't... Um, yeah, we're just going to fail without you, God. So uh, please empower us to do it. Help us to have faith that you uh, will accomplish your mission through normal, everyday people like us, and, uh, and you'll receive glory for it. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.